If you'll remain standing and open your Bible to John chapter 8, verses 31 through 59. As we continue our series in the Gospel of John, title of the message right here from the text, The Truth Will Set You Free, reading out of the English Standard Version. Listen to the word of the Lord. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We're offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you're offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because, of my, because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you've heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You're doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I'm here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you're not of God. The Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father, Abraham, rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad 
So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Well, God, you, your word is true and living. It is perfect and powerful and always has something to say to us. We enter this service this morning and this time of the service with the expectation that you have a word of truth and life to speak to people assembled here today and even those listening online. And so, Lord, with, with our hearts ready to receive and our ears opened, would you speak, O oh Lord, your word by your spirit through your servant to your people for your glory and our good always. Lord, move me out of your way that my voice might be the instrument by which your voice is heard. In Christ's name, amen. And you may be seated. Well, I think we've considered before the fact that the, the conditions into which any of us were born and raised just seem normal to us. We don't, we don't know any different. And so for a long time, we don't question them or think anything about them. So for example, if you were born into uh, a, a relatively affluent family and circumstances, you would just think that was normal. And uh, conversely, or, or by contrast, if you were born into relative poverty, you wouldn't know any different than that either. You would think just that was normal. You wouldn't have any reason to question. And so it would go about lots of different circumstances. If you were born in a, uh, an unsafe and kind of insecure neighborhood, you wouldn't know it to be unsafe or insecure. It's just your neighborhood and so on and so forth. Whatever circumstances we're born into for some period of time anyway, those would just seem normal. To some extent, that must have been true and perhaps even uh, some parts of the world still is true, but that must have been true for children born into slavery. As evil as that is, as horrific as that would be of circumstances to be born into, children born into that would only know that as the life that they are born into. For some period of time, they wouldn't know um, that there's anything any different or there's anything remarkable about it. That would just be their circumstances. They would only know the life they experience um, and um, wouldn't think any more about it. Uh, they would be told in many ways, maybe explicitly, maybe many more implicitly, that this is who they are and this is your life. And they wouldn't know anything more until maybe some years later when they got old enough to begin to question or discern themselves, maybe to observe people who seem to live more freely than they do. And they see there's some contrast in their experience. And maybe even somebody along the way whispers to them, you're not born for this. You're going to be free someday. Well, in this passage, in this back and forth dialogue that we just read in uh, John 8, verses 31 to 59, Jesus 
really speaks to something uh, similar on a, on a spiritual level and reveals two truths about our spiritual condition, really of all humanity. Everybody, everybody is identified uh, one place or the other in this passage. But there are really two truths about our spiritual condition here. And this is kind of the sermon in a nutshell. Again, in case I obscure it otherwise, you'll know what uh, at least two things I was trying to say and to make clear. Number one, that all people are born into spiritual slavery and are kept there by lies that we believe. And second, that Christ sets people free from spiritual bondage by the truth that is embodied in him. That he tells the truth and he is the truth. And it is that truth that sets people free, he said here in this passage. The, the, the text itself is, is, is maybe structured around uh, the contrast between two pairs of competing realities. So those two points about our, our, that we're born into spiritual slavery, kept there by um, the lies we believe, and that Christ sets us free from spiritual bondage by the truth embodied in him. That's really sort of the message itself. But, but the structure of it, I think, is around, again, these contrast, contrast between two competing realities. You've got freedom versus bondage, and then truth versus lies. And, and so the, the text sort of unfolds around dialogue back and forth about those two things. So I actually want to uh, sort of uh, take the passage under those um, headings, those two pairs of contrasting themes. Number one, freedom versus bondage. That everybody, every human being, either lives in freedom or in bondage. Uh, the declaration Jesus makes in verse 31 and 32 is familiar to many of us. We've heard this if you've been around the church, if you've been a student of the Bible. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So notice two things about that assurance that he gives. First, that it pertains to those who abide in or continue in or hold to his teaching. So it's not just those who have had some momentary, occasional sort of profession of faith in him that they've, that they've in, at, at some moment or episode said that I believe in Jesus. It's not those, but those who continue in that belief. It's not just those who affirm something as true intellectually, but those who conform their lives to his teaching. And we know that primarily because when he says, uh, when he's speaking of those who abide in his teaching, we know his teaching consists not only of uh, truths to believe, but also commandments to obey. So the one who abides in the word of Jesus is conforming his life to the commandments of Jesus and even imitating the life of Jesus himself. But he says also that those who abide in his word are his disciples, not that they will be. P pay attention to this just, just a moment if you're, if you're nodding off or thinking about lunch or the, or the soup that you're going to put on to warm you up when you get home. 
But, but in other words, he's, he's, one of the things he says here is that it is those who abide in his word that he's speaking to, but that those who abide in his word are his disciples, not they will be. The reason that's a significant ex, uh, distinction is because the, the, those who continue in his teaching just have evidence that they are his disciples. They're, they're not, they don't become his disciples indeed the more and more they obey his word. They, it's, a, it's a mark that they are his disciples. We are made his by his grace alone. That was one of the themes last week, right? That we are, we are made disciples of Jesus because he set his love upon us by his sovereign grace alone. One of the evidences of that, that we are his, truly his disciples, is that we abide in his word. Those who abide in his word are his disciples. And again, by implication, those who do not abide in his word are not his disciples. In spite of their profession, in spite of however long they have spent in church, in spite of any ways they've served in church, in spite of all manner of all kinds of other things, those who abide in his word are his disciples. Those who do not abide in his word are not. That's what Jesus is driving home here. Those who are truly his disciples are set free from spiritual bondage. But the Jews that he is talking to here object. And what's interesting is that it says right at the outset, these are some of the Jews who believed. One of the things we've observed in the Gospel of John is he speaks regularly to people who believe but not really. Right? You've picked up on that? That, uh, that there are some who believe in him in some sense. But they're not really with him. They don't really understand who he is. They're not really devoted to him in the way that he calls people to be devoted. And so it is with the people that he's talking to here. They kind of object to this because they say they're Abraham's offspring. Abraham is their father. They've never been enslaved to anyone. What do you mean you'll set us free? That's offensive that you would say that to us. So go say that to Gentiles, not to us. And Jesus says in verse 34... Look there, because it pertains to everyone at one time or another. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. That is the natural state of fallen human beings. We are born into slavery. We are born into spiritual slavery. That is our natural inheritance. Sin is the master and we are the servant. Apart from the grace of God operating in us to raise us from death to life, uh, we are incapable of doing any truly spiritual good or any truly good, anything truly good spiritually, that is, that's pleasing to God. We are slaves to sin, born into spiritual slavery. Now, we don't, we don't always think of ourselves that way because we, we, could, we could think of our own lives and our own experiences and think of all kinds of ways in which we are very much free and we uh, make our own decisions. And ironically, sometimes people who, who think they live the most freely, the most carefree kind of lives, without boundaries, without rules, I just go do it my way, 
Um, they are, in, in, in some ways, the most bound by sin, even though they think of themselves as living most freely because they will only, all of their free choices, they will only choose freely among a whole bunch of other sins. Sinners freely choose to sin. We're mastered by it, even as we think we're free. Uh, think about, for example, or kind of by way of illustration, the fact that prisoners um, have some choices that they can make in their day-to-day life. Or I've never experienced this. Personally, uh, by the way, I've never been in prison, but... Um, but that depending on the level of security of the of, of prison you're in, that you have some choices you can make about what you're going to do on any given day. So whether you're in minimum security or low security, medium, high, or maximum, and that kind of thing, it would probably those options would vary. But uh, many prisoners have some uh, recreational activities that they can engage in, right? So they they might you might choose to to to. Uh, go to the weight room and work out or an exercise room. You might choose to play basketball. You might choose to go to the library or um, participate in some religious activities. Free choices, right? But they are not free people. They're prisoners. And they can only choose freely among the choices offered to prisoners. And that is the station of every human being born into sin that we freely choose among the choices that sinners have. We're mastered by sin, even if we don't think we are mastered by it, even as we think we are free, born into slavery in that way. Because there's a whole list of things those prisoners can't do, right? They cannot go for a walk on the beach. They can't... uh, They might be able to go to the library and read a book, but they can't read a book to their child or to their grandchild. And there's a much longer list of things they cannot do than there is of things that they can do. And so the person who is a slave to sin cannot worship God rightly, cannot cannot live a holy life, a life that is pleasing to God, cannot live a life that really is genuinely filled with joy and promise and hope and so on. Because we're born into sin, we're slaves to sin and can only choose from among those. But by receiving new life through the Spirit of God and by being empowered by the fullness of the Spirit of God, by conforming our life to the teaching of Jesus, we are freed to live a life pleasing to God. I don't know if any of that just made sense. But we're born into spiritual bondage and by the grace of God, by the spirit of God, we are set free to live a life that is truly pleasing to him. Augustine said it this way, our hope is this, brethren, to be made free by the free one and that by setting us free, he may make us his servants. For we were the servants of lust, but being set free, We are the servants of love. Part of the illusion that human beings have of their own freedom is that we are totally free and that we are our own master. There is no scenario in which you are the master. 
Sin is your master or Jesus Christ is your master. It's one or the other of those. But you don't call the shots even when you think you're calling them. And so we are set free by the, the one who is himself free and that by setting us free, he may make us his servants. Servants not to lust, but to love. And countless other vices turn to virtue. And so we see that contrast there of freedom versus bondage that gives us insight into the fact that we're born into slavery, into captivity and set free by him. The second contrasting uh, claims here, realities are that there's truth versus lies. We see the interrelationship between uh, freedom and truth and bondage and lies. But we saw that the mark of a true disciple is that he abides in Jesus' word. We see here that a mark of one who is not a true disciple is not only that he doesn't abide in, his, in, in Jesus' word, but that he actually walks in lies rather than truth. The person who is not a disciple, not truly a disciple of Jesus. Again, be sure you understand the distinction. I'm not talking about one who says he's a disciple versus one who says he's not a disciple. I'm talking about ones who are truly disciples versus those who are not truly disciples. There are people who think they're disciples who are not truly disciples. That's who Jesus is talking to. And one of the marks that a person is not a true disciple is they live by lies, believe lies. This was true of the devil himself. And maybe you picked up on that in like verses 43, actually 43 through 47. But if you look back at just verses 43 and 44, Jesus said, this, why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he speaks lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar, the father of lies. So you're just like your father is what Jesus is saying. Who's a liar? And so to a liar, one who lives by lies, the truth sounds like a lie. You get that? The reason, the reason you can't accept uh, what I'm saying, you, you can't bear to hear my word. The reason you don't understand, you can't bear to hear it. It sounds false to you because you live by lies. And the truth actually sounds contrary. This is, the, this is the mind of the person who is not a disciple of Jesus, who in some way lives by lies. And it was Satan's strategy from the very beginning. I mean, Jesus said here, this is, this is true of your father. He is in, it's in his nature to lie and to kill. And it was his strategy from the very beginning to get people to disbelieve and disobey God by getting them to believe lies. By lying to them and convincing them to believe lies. You, you remember that the, the devil uh, introduced doubt into the minds of Adam and Eve by saying, did God really say? Do you remember this encounter in Jesus uh, or in Genesis when he, when he comes to Eve and says, did God really say? 
you can't eat any tree. She says, no, just can't eat this one tree or even touch it. Well, God didn't say that part, actually. But he said, did God really say, no, you won't die. You'll actually just be enlightened a whole lot more like God is. And then it says in verse 6 of Genesis chapter 3, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Now, I want you to to capture some of this because this is the, the, the sort of playbook of Satan Uh, That it's the same go-to strategy down through all the centuries. And it's still operating in our world. Uh, It's it's always an invitation to you and I to bite the hook. And it still is what keeps people captive. This same strategy. And what, what happened there with Eve, it says, he told her the lie... And then she looks in the tree and what? She saw it's good for food. Well, that's not true. God said don't eat it. It can't possibly be good. But it looks good for food. It's a delight to the eyes and desirable to make one wise. It's good. It's delightful. It's desirable. Now listen, loved ones. Those three reasons right there will cause you to want to believe a lie before it's even told to you. Because you want to do what you think is good. You want to do what is delightful to you. And you want to do what's desirable. We are set up in our flesh to want to believe the lies. And that's exactly what happens in Genesis chapter 3. She believes what she wants to believe. That's as common to the human experience as anything you could put your finger on. That in large measure, we believe lies because we want to believe lies. And people who continue to stay in bondage to sin and to lies and deception, in many ways, want to stay there. But she wanted that to be, she wanted it to be acceptable to eat that fruit, so she convinced herself it was, and she ate it. That inclination of the human heart has continued down through the ages, and it is a primary cause of our slavery and also a primary uh, evidence of our slavery. That is to say, if you were, to, if you were riding by on the road uh, in a bygone era, perhaps, I don't know that they still really do this, but you know, if you saw the, the, the chain gang working on the side of the road from prison, you know, where they'd be out doing a work detail and actually chained together in some ways so that they couldn't run or move, what, the, 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 the chains... Uh, caused them to be imprisoned, right? But it's also evidence to the bystander that they are prisoners. You can identify them by their chains, and it is also the chains that keep them prisoners. In, in a similar way, uh, lies keep us bound to sin. They, they, are, they are part of what the means by which we are kept in bondage to sin, but they're also just an evidence that our father is the devil, not God himself. It's not 
uh, Abraham, that we're not children of the faith, we're children of the enemy because we live according to lies. We believe lies. Many times we're eager to do so, just like uh, Adam and Eve were. Lies are sometimes easier to believe than the truth because they're what we want to hear. Um, sometimes it might be convenient to believe because it allows me to do the thing I want to do or not do the thing that I would otherwise feel obligated to do. It's attractive in that way. We, we want to believe it. Even sometimes we're eager to believe it. You know, I, I saw a couple of headlines on Friday. It was interesting that both of them were out on, on one day. But um, claims that some years apart, the uh, uh, political campaigns of one of the Democratic Party, the other of the Republican Party, had been guilty of just fabricating stories and essentially fabricating allegations about the other party, essentially. And, th and th there, there were claims of, of, against both parties in this regard that I saw uh, headlines of on Friday. And what's interesting about that, again, is just an, an example of the sort of thing we're talking about, is what happens when those fabrications are communicated. Well, I mean, in a very general sense, you get Democrats want to believe the lies that Democrats tell. And Republicans want to believe the lies that Republicans tell. Because it's exactly what they already decided they believe anyway. Somebody tells a lie, they sort of put words to the story that they want to believe, and they run with it. And, and, and the point being, like, you could go back and you could, you could page back into 2020 and find examples of this galore, right? Of just lies that are thrown out there, sometimes just completely out of nowhere, that people are willing to believe and eager to believe. And I thought it was, uh, that, that came to mind as I think about, like, even down in verse 48, where the, it says the Jews say, are we not right in saying that you're a Samaritan and you have a demon? No, no, you're not right at all. You're nowhere close to right. Where, like that, that's actually puzzling even to, even to New Testament scholars. Where, that just comes out of nowhere. You're, you're a Samaritan. Like there's, that, that claim is nowhere else that I know of. Are we not right that you're a Samaritan and you have a demon? No, you're not anywhere close to right, but that fits your narrative pretty well, doesn't it? See, they, they, they wanted to believe that about Jesus. There's an eagerness on our part. I thought of a, a more humorous example of this as I was um, uh, preparing this message and thinking about this truth about our eagerness to believe lies because sometimes the lie is just more appealing. Uh, when we were in Virginia, I was the head of a school there, uh, First Baptist Christian School, and our, our we, main campus, our elementary campus, was downtown um, at, the, at First Baptist Church, an old property. And uh, so one day I got word that there had been uh, an, a, a, a measure of unrest had set upon the fourth grade. <laughs> and uh, it was two fourth grades and sort of a whole bunch of the fourth grade girls had just gotten worked up into a real tizzy. And um, the teachers had called the school counselor to come down and talk to them. And what they told her was that there were ghosts 
in the bathroom. And, uh, and this came from the fact that there, there were, uh, the, the, so the history of the church said, there were some burial sites underneath the church property. It was built up a level over some old grave sites or whatever. And somebody had started the story that from those old grave sites, there were ghosts now in the bathroom right above those right above those grave sites. And they, I mean, you can imagine if you've ever been in a school environment, you know how this thing, this kind of thing will get away from you. And it became a big lie. And they were all worked up about it. And so the school counselor, uh, who was a friend of ours, but also just, just brilliant at such things, she said, girls, do you think if those people could be in heaven with Jesus, they'd be hanging out here in the bathroom? Well, even that, I think it just like that made, that made a little bit of sense to the fourth graders. I, and now that you say that, no, that, that really doesn't make much sense at all, does it? But see, you know, that story that they believed, they were ready to believe something like that. That was a whole lot more interesting than multiplying numbers with decimals or, or, or you know, conjugating verbs or whatever else was going on in the fourth grade that day. And again, it's an illustration of our readiness to believe lies. And it is a mark of somebody who is not a disciple of Jesus. And, it, and when we find ourselves inclined that way, uh, it, ought to, it ought to shake us into repentance and forsaking the lies and pursuing the truth with all that we are. It ought to make us slow to accept any claim as true. Because we want to know what's true about all things. We're people of the truth. But see, what's, what's much more significant than any of the examples um, that we could give sort of externally in the political domain, uh, in, in, in fourth grade ghost stories, or anything else of that sort, what's far more significant and far more consequential is the lies people believe about ourselves in relationship to God. The lies people believe about ourselves in relationship to God. In fact, that's really the heart of the matter here in this, in this passage. And here they are in kind of in summary. Well, there are some people who believe there is no God, of course, and so they have no relationship to him at all. Um, they're bound by lies in, in a whole different kind of way. But for people who believe in God in some sense and that they have uh, some relationship to him, or his truth, or whatever, in some respect. Here are the lies, I think you can sort of summarize uh, all, all of the lies under these headings. Number one, I'm okay with God and he's okay with me. That comes in a lot of different forms. But in other words, people who, even the people who say, I'm not really, I'm spiritual, but not really religious. They believe there's some kind of heaven and deity or whatever or people who believe in a monotheistic God and all in between. I'm okay with God and God's okay with me. I'm not perfect, but God's kind of chill about that sort of thing, and I'm, I'm just okay. All right? So that's lie number one. Lie number two, I'm not entirely okay with God, but I'm making myself okay. I'm not, I'm not entirely acceptable, but I'm making myself acceptable to him. 
And again, there's two general ways by which people think they do that. Number one, by religious activity. So I, I do certain things. I give offerings. I go to confession. I um, you know, participate, engage in the sacraments. I serve the poor, whatever kinds of things, religious activity I do that makes me more acceptable to God. I'm getting there. And then other people think they make themselves more acceptable to God by good moral conduct. I'm just, just being a good person in general. I'm adding up positives, right? I've got, I've got some negatives in the negative column. I'm trying to outweigh those by doing more good than I do bad. And hopefully the balance is going to tilt in my favor and I'll be okay with God. And then the third lie would be, I'm not okay with God and there's no way I'm going to be okay with God. There's no way he's going to be okay with me. I've done too much. I've gone too far. I sinned way too badly. I've done things. If I told you about them, you wouldn't be my friend anymore. I, if, if, I, if I told you them, you know, you would cut me out of your life. You'd be ashamed of me. And God knows that. And there's no way he can forgive me. And there are lots of people, lots of people who believe that lie. Lots of people who believe the other ones as well. As a matter of fact, I think, I think we could say we, we see some little hint of the first two in the people Jesus is talking to. I'm, I'm okay with God and he's okay with me in the sense that I'm, I'm a child of Abraham. I got the right bloodline. I'm good to go. I still got to do my best, you know, but I'm good. And then he says, well, you know, if you were the child of Abraham, you would do like Abraham uh, does, but you're seeking to kill me. They, well, uh, well, God is our father. So um, we worship him, we serve him, we do the religious things that uh, please him and appease him, and we're going to be okay with him. So you get sort of a, a little uh, glimpse at both versions of those lies. Where I'm okay with him, he's okay with me, I'm not entirely okay, I'm making myself okay. Or again, we see probably in the background those who would say, I'm not okay with God. There's no way I'm going to be okay with God. And no matter which of those lies you might even still believe today, you might find yourself uh, saying, resonating with that and saying that those are, those are the, the, in fact, I didn't even, I don't even think of those as being lies. That's just what seems true to me. That's exactly the way the enemy has worked from the very beginning. His very first strategy in keeping the very first humans, the very first people separated from God, is to tell them a lie and get them to believe it. And so, we want to hear as people born in into slavery, into spiritual bondage, we want to hear the voice that says to us today, you're not born for this. You can be free. You can be free someday. This is not your future. This is not your fate. And so for those who have ears to hear, hear the voice of Jesus, not whispering, but crying out. 
Be free. Be free. Believe the truth, not the lies. Walk in the truth, not the lies. Come to me, the one who says, if you believe me, you'll, you'll, not, see, you'll, not, you'll not see death. Before Abraham was, I am. All the truth, all the answers, all the hope are found in him. And the call that goes out to every set of ears this morning is believe the truth, obey the truth, and come to the one who is himself the truth and be set free. Let's pray. God, this is a glorious truth that you unpack before us here in this text. That in Christ, we're set free from the bondage to sin. Lord, there may be some here who've never, never thought of themselves as being born into spiritual slavery. They, their experiences, they're plenty free. They do lots of things. Most things that they choose to do and things that they think make them happy and that they find fulfilling. And yet, Lord, if you would give them eyes to see the reality, if you would shine light on the reality, they would see that in one way or another, all of those free choices serve themselves and, uh, and their own interests. They put self uh, on the throne in your place. And they, they are just servants to a sinful self and a sinful set of lies. Lord, I pray that you would awaken us from our slumber, that you would show us in greater detail and more vividly, profoundly and truly, the truth of who Jesus is, of what he's done, Lord, that particularly people who really are kept uh, ensnared, enslaved, bound up by the lie that they can never be good enough, that they can never be acceptable to you. Lord, I pray by the power of your spirit today that you would set people free and just move them to flee to Jesus. that he is enough, that he has all the answers, that he has done everything and will do the rest. Lord, would you lead us from bondage to freedom, from lies to truth, that our lives may sing your praises. In Jesus' name, amen. where we're going to come now to the Lord's table as we uh, really uh, 
demonstrate in, in the, the word of truth of the gospel, of that good news about who Jesus is and what he's done, that we, um, that we actually do the gospel in a certain respect, that we see it visibly represented and we even experience it in a tangible way as we partake of the body and blood of his sacrifice, um, which he made for us. Um, a couple of things I'll say just by way of instruction and um, introduction that uh, the table here is open to everybody who's a believer in Jesus. So you don't have to be a member here of our church, just a member of his church. Uh, you don't have to be um, you know, part of Myrtle Grove necessarily. If you're welcome at his table, you're welcome at, at our table. Um, so that's the first thing. And if you're not a believer in Jesus, that's just not a decision you've made yet. His word to you is to um, abstain from partaking of the communion elements. That the first step would be to place your faith in him, to trust him, to decide to follow him, uh, and that this step would then follow sometime later. Um, so the, the other thing I'll say here is that, once again, we are um, using these self-contained, um, all-in, two-in-one sort of communion elements, a little chalice, so on one side is the bread, on the other side is the cup. And so these should be a little bit easier to open, but we'll distribute those, and um, the worship team will lead us in song as, um, as those are being distributed. Use that time as an opportunity to examine yourself, to reflect, uh, to confess and repent, to, to just get real before the Lord, and then at the conclusion of that song, we'll all um, partake of the elements together. Um, and so, having said that, we're reminded that on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I'll ask our elders to go ahead and come forward for the distribution. And as they're coming, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you as always for this indescribably good gift to us, not only that Jesus died that we might live, that he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Not only that he did that, but Lord, that you have given us this precious sacrament, that by it, in ways that we don't understand, we are brought into the very presence of Jesus into communion with him. And so, Lord, we pray that you would bless these ordinary elements and set them apart, consecrate them for this extraordinary purpose, that by them, your people might really partake of the body and blood of our Lord Jesus. 
Lord, I pray that as we do, that we would have a real encounter with the living Savior, that you would minister individually, even as we have need, all the ways in which we need brokenness to be mended, all the ways in which we need to be made whole, Lord, would you minister in very personal ways as we commune with Jesus here. We ask in his name, amen.